This podcast is sponsored by Zondervan Bibles, featuring the new NASB Journal the Word Reference Bible. Let Scripture explain Scripture and reflect on what you learn. Listen for more at the end of today's program. Welcome to Mortification of Spin, a casual conversation about things that count, with Carl Truman and Todd Pruitt. Mortification of Spin is a weekly podcast from the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. Let's join this week's conversation. Welcome to Mortification of Spin. My name's Carl Truman. I teach Biblical and Religious Studies at Grove City College in Western Pennsylvania, and I'm here with my friend and fellow host, Todd Pruitt, pastor of Covenant Presbyterian Church in Harrisonburg, Virginia, in the beautiful Shenandoah Valley. I say it without a slip or without a mistake these days. Finally got the distinction between Harrisonburg and Harrisburg off pat. Well, today we're very privileged to have the author of a fascinating new book uh, to talk about his work with us. This book came to my attention, I think it was on public discourse, where there was a very, very positive review posted this book a couple of months ago, immediately caught my attention. Uh, The author is Eric Jacobson, who is Senior Pastor of First Presbyterian Church in Tacoma, Washington, and the book is Three Pieces of Glass. Why We Feel Lonely in a World Mediated by Screens, published by Brazos Press in Grand Rapids. Now, any pastors out there, or if you're a professor like me, or if you're a parent, uh, you are acutely aware of how uh, technologized youth, early adulthood now is, and perhaps also aware uh, on, on the darker side of this about how much Anxiety and loneliness stalks our world today, particularly, it seems, uh, among young people. What Dr. Jacobson does in this book is analyze the way in which, particularly technology, the way presence is now mediated through these three pieces of glass, has, if not caused, then certainly exacerbated, intensified, and profoundly shaped the nature of loneliness, alienation, and isolation in uh, the current uh, American scene. So thanks for joining us, Eric. It's great to have you on the program. Absolutely. Uh, Perhaps you could start by explaining to the audience, what exactly are the three pieces of glass? It's a great title. Caught my my, my eyes immediately. What are the three pieces of glass? Yeah, no, thanks for asking. That's that's kind of the the obvious first question. And and I I thought the cover of the book for those... Uh, it can be a little obscure. If you look at it closely, you can see those three pieces of glass. But I think what I'm trying to do is most people, as you mentioned, are aware of the um, the way technology, specifically the cell phone, has led to some isolation um, and some loneliness among people. And I think so people are kind of aware of that. What I try to do is walk that um, phenomenon backwards to a couple other earlier decisions where I feel like we in in the United States uh, as a society made some deliberate decisions to move away from human face-to-face contact towards mediated contact. And, and so the first piece of glass, which I think will be surprising maybe to some folks, is the glass of our automobile windshields. 
that we created a culture where we have to drive everywhere. And so we really limited and, and reduced the amount of time that we spend facing one another, uh, you know, in face-to-face contact in public, you know, we're driving so much. And when we encounter people behind the wheel of our automobile, we treat them differently. Nice people can say pretty unkind things or make rude gestures. And I really believe that we don't see other people when they're driving. Typically we don't see them as human beings. We see them as competitors for lane space and parking spaces. They're threats to us. If they've, uh, made poor decisions in terms of alcohol consumption, they can really put our families at risk. And so we really, uh, we kind of reduce our humanity as we interact with people in that way. Um, that led to a society-wide shift where we moved houses further away and separated houses from corner stores and all that kind of stuff and, and, and really redesigned our neighborhoods to accommodate the car. So, so in the past, you would have like a front porch uh, in the front of your house and you'd have, uh, and, and neighbors would walk by and greet each other, you know, in, on those walks. But now since world war II, the way we've designed houses is to put garage doors in front, uh, and, and eliminate the front porch. So we're not sitting on the front porch interacting with our neighbors anymore. We've spent 45 minutes commuting home. We don't have time for that, but we've gotten a little bit, uh, you know, we, I think we missed something in interacting with our neighbors that way. And so the second piece of glass that I introduce is the television. You know, we've moved away from the front porch into our living room, and now we watch TV, and we have these kind of quasi-social relationships with fictional characters or reality TV show folks. And um, again, pulling us away from face-to-face contact. Um, and then, and then, you know, decade or so later, uh, you know, we bring the cell phone on, and that really is, like I say, the third piece of glass that really, you know, between the, the automobile. Uh, oriented development that we've done, all that. We've, we kind of created a situation where you can go from home to office without encountering another person uh, face-to-face. But there were a couple cracks in the system. You'd have to go pick up your kids from uh, school. You'd have to go to the grocery store and get some groceries. But now we've got these cell phones that we take with us in those situations so that if we might run into another person, we can stare at our phones and look <laughs> through a screen. It just feels like we've completely boxed ourselves in uh, from from that kind of face-to-face human contact, which is really necessary. Uh, and so I think we've really um, put ourselves in a bad way with that. One of the things I thought of uh, as I was reading the book was the fact that um, technology is, is rarely neutral. Yeah. And some of these developments, which oftentimes will have good features, um, prove themselves to, to not be neutral because of of the bad things that they can produce. And I, and I was I was... I was mindful of, of even Marshall McLuhan's old dictum that, you know, the, the, the medium is the message and, 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 and the cell phone, while it has made certain things easier, and, and I, I know parents are glad that they can locate their kids easier, that sort of thing, it, it does force one to, to ask, has the cost been worth it, though? And that's, that's the dilemma. Yeah, absolutely. The cost may not be worth it. I think one thing that, you know, from a, from a Christian standpoint that I think we can think about is that is the cell phone and a lot of these technologies. And, and I don't want to be, I want to be clear. I've got a cell phone and my kids have cell phones. Sure. I, I'm not trying to, to just, you know, completely remove myself from how we do things. But I think that particular technology is particularly good at navigating transactional relationships. We can get the things that we want and we'll, mm-hmm. and we'll establish what we're willing to give in exchange for that. And, um, you know, as Christians, we want to be more in covenantal relationships with people. We want to be in yeah. full bodied, you know, I want to, I want to, uh, buy something from the grocery store and I've got a checker there 
who's helping me with that transaction. But I want to, if I go to that store on a somewhat regular basis, I want to have some kind of relationship with that checker that a relationship of trust builds up where we can ask each other about each other's kids. Or, you know, if I forget my money one day, she can let me, you know, grab a gallon of milk and bring the money back or the more full bodied human relationships that we can have instead of simply reducing everything to a transaction is much more possible. I think in face to face, real um, interaction than in screen mediated. Yeah. And, and it's interesting because as a, a parent of three kids who've all moved through their, their teen years, one of the things I've noticed and in dealing also, you know, weekly with, with parents who have teenagers as a pastor of a church is uh, these, the, 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 the phone tends to reduce relationships from actual uh, communion with persons uh, the way we'd want, but, but it also makes it impossible to ever get away from certain things. So our teenagers, you know, when you and I would go home from school, yeah. um, uh, we, we weren't, it didn't continue on with the conflicts of the day constantly via text. Yeah. And, and, and that's one of the things I find with teenagers is and, and the rise in anxiety due to the cell phone is that there's a constant connectedness to these kind of surface relationships. So it's not real relationship. It's mediated through a screen, right. but they're never able to leave a particular conflict, but that yeah. little thing and, and continues to foment it. And, and it seems that that, that, that causes a lot of the, the, the teen anxiety perhaps. Yeah. You know, and I th- this isn't really pertinent exactly to my book, but it's, it's, it's sort of in the same vein, but I think with the pandemic and all the ways we've had to like, translate everything over to zoom and other kinds of, so I think a lot of us adults are maybe getting to experience a bit of that. I don't know if you guys have experienced that, but now that I can work anywhere because we've moved all of our yes. interactions to a screen, when I come home at the end of the day, it's really hard for me to establish boundaries that now I'm home. Right Now I'm not in work mode because I, I could jump on a meeting, you know, right at the dinner table and right. just mute the sound and sort of still half be there. And yeah. I, yeah, I feel like what you described of the teenagers was really has been a problem for the last couple of years, but we adults now are getting a little taste of it. It's yeah. exhausting. It is. Yeah, so in, in, it's interesting that the, the pandemic has, uh, I think it's also highlighted for young people that, that bodily interaction is good. I mean, one of the things that I was dreading when, you know, Grove City, like all colleges in the spring, not knowing not what was going on, we flipped to online and for a hidebound educational traditionalist like me, it was kind of, oh no, this is the moment the, the barbarians storm, storm the city, you know, and we're going to yeah, find yeah. out that online is the way forward. And, and what's happened in higher education, of course, is there's been a reaction by students against this. And suddenly colleges are realizing, well, we think we're charging X thousand for tuition, but the students, what they think they're paying for is actually being in a college community with real people. Right. And yes. uh, one of the sort of the glimmers of hope for me has been the reaction of young people to going online. Now, there may be other reasons. They may just want to get away from their parents. Yeah. Etc. There are all kinds of reasons. But I like the fact that when Grove announced we were going back in person, we had students transferring from colleges that declared they were going online because mm. they wanted to be on campus. And I love teaching. Yeah on a campus where the, you know, I, I can't drive around campus. I am walking around rubbing shoulders with colleagues, with students. 
Um, I love that you uh, are making that observation because there was a, a bit of irony or, or something with the pandemic where I was, my book had come out this spring and, you know, here I am criticizing screen mediated communication. And <laughs> I'm standing in front of a, a, a video camera telling my congregants to, for the passing of the peace today, pull out your cell phone and just reach out to somebody. And I just thought, oh, the irony here. But my hope was, and, and kind of what you, that, that the pandemic is going to have two potential impacts. One is it might increase our screen use in some ways. It certainly opened our imagination to the ways we could use screens to do a doctor's appointment or to have a, a late night meeting. And there may be some good out of that in terms of giving people access that they wouldn't have otherwise. But I think the other thing is what you just mentioned is it's caused us to be more aware of our hunger for face-to-face -face communication. I've noticed that with my congregation that they are, you know, we, we've come back a little bit, but, it's, but a lot of them are uh, not feeling comfortable to come back yet. But when, you know, in the, right in the middle of this, you know, they were really missing being together and they couldn't pinpoint, I wish, you know, it wasn't hearing me preach live. It wasn't anything else. It was, it was really just being together in the same room is what they missed. And uh, that was good for me to, to note that. I hope, I hope that we remember how much we miss that <laughs> when it, when yeah. it yeah. becomes normal yeah. again. Definitely. Uh, one of the things that, uh, I mean, obviously one of the themes that, that carries through your book and, and I was helped at the amount of time you spend unpacking this definitionally as well as conceptually, um, the word belonging. Oh yeah. Um, not just as a word, but as, as, as a concept. And I wonder if you would just kind of unpack that a bit. You, what do you mean when you use the word belonging yeah. And, and, and what, what is significant about that? Yeah. Thank you for asking. And, it, it, and I, and, and probably, yeah, it's, I do a lot of, uh, there's many chapters dedicated to belonging. So it's, it's somewhat complicated. I'll try to keep it somewhat simple. Sure. But um, you know, the, the real impetus for the book was loneliness. Loneliness is a huge problem. Uh, and it's, it's on the radar now as, as not only as a mental health problem, but a social, uh, a public health problem. You know, the, the people who are chronically lonely are, are more likely to die than people who are chronically obese or heavy smokers. Um, and so it's a, it's, a, it's a big issue and a lot of people are trying to solve it. But I noticed in, the, in sort of the public discourse around loneliness, a couple pieces are missing. One is it's seen primarily as a relational problem. People who are lonely because they have less friends than they want to have or less close people in their lives. And I think that's definitely true. But I kind of suspect that we are not only um, lonely relationally, but we're also disconnected from the places that we live. People's lives are so scattered between where they live, where they work, where they go to church, that a lot of people feel disconnected from their own neighborhoods. And I think that adds to a sense of loneliness. So I wanted to add kind of a place element to belonging. I wanted, I want, I, I use belonging as a, as a, there's no good word for the opposite of loneliness. Um, and so I propose belonging as kind of an antidote to loneliness and belonging in my way of thinking about it involves both relationships and place, like not just knowing people, but knowing people who live near you and having the people who you care about somewhat proximate to you so you can enjoy uh, physical contact uh, with them. So that's one correction that I make. The other one is when people think about belonging, most people think about it as a good thing. You know, we want more, more belonging is good, less belonging is bad. And I agree with that. Except one thing that came to my mind halfway through the book is not all belonging is equally good. Some belonging actually can do harm to us. Uh, belonging in a high school clique, for instance, is not good because in a high school clique, the rules for, for staying in the clique is you have to leave some people out 
And you're constantly nervous that if you gain weight or can't afford nice clothes, you'll be kicked out of this group. So it's a very insecure kind of belonging. And so from a kind of Christian lens, I, I kind of create this language of kingdom belonging is the good kind of belonging, the kind of belonging that God wants to have for us. It's very inclusive. It's very safe. It's covenantal. It's, it's grounded in a promise that you're never going to get kicked out. And, uh, and, and worldly belonging is the other kind of belonging that, that uh, is, is anxious and, and needs an enemy in order to feel secure and all that kind of stuff. And so right. um, I try to, you know, anyway, it's a, it's a, it's a complex kind of, uh, belonging, but I think it's important for us to think about, you know, when, when we think about loneliness as a problem, what is the solution that we're after? Do we, do we want, you know, cause I, I'm sure there's a lot of ways people might solve loneliness that isn't going to make things better. <laughs> right. Right. And how is it, how is it that the church of Jesus Christ is a, is a sign of that kind of belonging that yeah. you're, that you're raising the flag for? Yeah, absolutely. So kingdom belonging is kind of the, the, the goal. And I think the church is meant to show that to the world in our way of, you know, being welcoming uh, to, to folks uh, that we are not um, like a country club. We're not, uh, we're not restricting people according to how wealthy they are or uh, what their racial background is and, and success and uh, someone's performance in life shouldn't matter. I mean, I, ideally the church should represent that to the world. But one of the things that I, in this conversation, one of the things that I've kind of become aware of is that's the ideal. The church doesn't always measure up to that ideal. And so the church doesn't all, sometimes the worldly way of thinking about belonging creeps into the church. We really, you know, we venerate the, the successful people and we kind of uh, sweep away the people that aren't successful or whatnot. So that's so, you know, I, when I come up with these terms kingdom and worldly, I, I, I quickly go on to say that the, the church doesn't always exclusively own the kingdom side. They should, they should be aspiring to that. They should be praying for that. That's a, a, a tall goal. The other thing I do, which is maybe a little bit more controversial, is I note that, um, and this comes a little bit more from the Dutch Calvinist side of things, that, uh, that there's oftentimes we see kingdom belonging popping up outside of the church. You've got secular organizations that represent that kind of good belonging in a way that the church could learn from. Um, and so just to pay attention, you know, that whole common grace idea that, that God's right. at work uh, all throughout the world and not only within the, the confines right. of, of, the, of the institutional church. And so we want to be aware of, you know, you know, there might be a really good sports team, mm-hmm. not good in the sense they win a lot of games, but the coach is so compassionate and so inclusive and so good at motivating these kids and, inclu- you know, that they really feel a strong sense of good belonging and they really encourage one another and they play fair and they're not jerks yeah. to the other teams. And, you know, that, that coach is, 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 is sort of created a kingdom belonging setting, whether or not, you know, they explicitly named Christ as the yeah. instigator there. You mentioned the, uh, uh, the civic sphere also as a place. Well, well you, 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 I think rightly, you know, lament the, uh, the decrease of, of civic participation. Yeah, absolutely. And I think people. that's where the church probably, that's a growing edge for the church. I know, mm-hmm. um, especially in, in contemporary American culture, you know, we, we do in the church, we really want people to, you know, feel connected at church in worship and those kinds of things. And we want to, we want people to have strong marriages at home and we might want them to be in a small group Bible study. And so we, we really emphasize kind of what I would say the public belonging at church and the, and the, and, and the private belonging at home, but we don't really help people navigate um, relationships in their neighborhood, you know, just out, out in the street and trying to, trying to help connect people in that way. And, and the, and the civic realm 
is a really important place um, for Christians to be salt and light in the world. Um, you know, so that, so that outsiders can get to know Christians, not only individually, like if I'm a Christian and I go to work every day, I might have a coworker that gets to know me individually, but it's really, I think it's really important for the Christian community to be out in the civic realm. And so people can see us not only individually, but see us in community. So we can show that kind of kingdom. My own instincts are that that kind of lies behind Paul's, one of Paul's qualifications for being an elder, where he talks about a good reputation with those outside. So it struck me as a very interesting qualification that that it's not just what people in church think of this person. It's what people outside are. Now, obviously, there are going to be limits to that because there are people out there who hate the church and anybody identified with the church is going to be considered uh, a bad person. But, 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 but isn't that, you know, that exact thing is partially because they're getting that from the media, right? They don't, they don't know a lot of Christians, a lot of people who have that point of view. They don't really know a lot of Christians very well, and they certainly don't know them in community. And so that tends to break. I, I do think there's kind of a, um, you know, um, having a good reputation in your neighborhood can be built by all sorts of things that don't have to do with your mm. political opinions and doesn't have to yeah, do with your cultural yeah. opinions. You know, that you can, you can just be a, a you know, a, the kind of person who engages yourself well, is, is friendly, is willing to help someone out. Um, you know, it really transcends a lot of our political divide at the neighborhood yeah, scale. Yeah. So I, I feel like we've really missed out on some, some good sort of public relations <laughs> for, the, for yeah. the kingdom by missing that, that middle area. And Carl, and Carl, that that what you mentioned, that qualification for an elder that you mentioned, it it does presappose that you are actually known by yeah, non-Christians. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. and I yeah. think actually, I think the the PCA do require a, a reference from outside the church for uh, for ordinations of the ministry. The OPC, my denomination, doesn't, and uh, you know, it's always struck me that that's something that presbytery should have some kind of mechanism for addressing. Mm-hmm. I, you know, it may look different depending where you are. And as I say, there are people out there who just don't like the church. We don't necessarily want to take their opinion of, a, of any given individual, but mm-hmm. it's a Pauline qualification. So it, yeah. it kind of reminds me, this might be a little tangential, but uh, the guy, this guy named Ray Oldenburg who coined the term third place, which he describes, you know, coffee shops as a third place. You got your workplace, you got your home place, and a third place is like a coffee shop. And one of the, reasons why he thinks they're so important is they teach a kind of uh, civic responsibility, a civ- civility. So at a coffee shop or there's a, where you share tables and people are talking and having kind of light conversation. He said, what happens is you learn how to interact in those settings uh, by, by the community. So if you're too loud or too obnoxious, people will move away from the table. You know? and, and, and so you learn that you have to talk about certain kinds of topics and you have to be careful with your opinion. Or you, if, if you've got a strong opinion, you got you to wear that in such a way that people will stay with you. And so I do think that I, you know, if Christians aren't showing up to the coffee shop and having that training, we can come off as being mm. sort of boorish. Uh, yeah. in the public realm, if we haven't learned just to have normal conversations with people in those kinds yeah. of settings. Yeah, it's one of the reasons I, I do about 90% of my sermon prep in coffee shops. That's because you're a caffeine and, and that's addict. That's the, yeah. <laughs> it reminds me very much of, of the old English village pub. You know, I grew up in a village and the pub yeah. was the sort of the, the center of, of social life. Sadly, a lot of pubs have gone out of business, but I always thought that the church missed an opportunity there. The church could have bought oh, the local pub and it could have been 
part of the hub of the community. Of course, you know, attitudes to alcohol, et cetera, et cetera, no doubt affected right, right, that, right. that strategy. But um, Eric, as we're, we're sort of moving towards the to close, but you, you do draw on, you draw on the work of Jamie Smith, and Desiring the Kingdom. Yes. Liturgies of belonging. You, you have these sort of practical <laughs> ideas for how the church can address some of the uh, isolation, fragmentation. You've talked about some of them. Are, are there any others that you'd want to sort of uh, highlight to our listeners before we before we draw? Yeah, I, lo- I love the work of Jamie Smith, and he's you know he's he's really influenced a lot of me. And one of the so one of the things that if if, if listeners are familiar with his uh, his brilliant notion of secular liturgies, you know he kind of talks about how the mall is this kind of liturgy where we learn that, um, you know, we, we get redemption through purchasing <laughs> shiny new things. And the church, uh, if we're going to counter that kind of uh, instruction, we need to have something more than just verbal teaching in the church. We need to have, what, you know, more robust liturgies of church life where baptism and communion and public worship can be places where we learn what salvation really looks like at, at the bodily level. I love that idea. And I take kind of Jamie's idea and I, I push it out a little bit where I don't think he believes this, but you could read his work as saying all the liturgies we do inside the church are good. And all the liturgies that happen outside the church, like the mall are bad. And we want to be leaning on the church stuff. I kind of push his logic a bit and say that there are liturgies we can do outside of the church that are kingdom, uh, uh, you know, that, that are, that support the kingdom. And so I make the distinction this, I gotta be really careful how I say this, because again, just as I own uh, a cell phone, I also own a couple of cars and we drive, uh, <laughs> as much as a, a, a lot of folks, but I think that there's a real difference between, um, walking to a destination or biking to a destination and driving your car. And I call those, I, I kind of contrast those liturgies when I walk to a destination and that, the book kind of talks about how there's so many things that have to happen for a lot of people to be able to do that because so many, so much of our society is separating us and all these, you know, you can't, most people can't just decide tomorrow to start walking to work. They're 30 right. miles away. It's not going to happen, but just set that aside for the moment and just think about for me, I live just uh, less than a mile from where I, from where I work and I often ride my bike or walk and sometimes I drive, but I, there's a real difference between one and the other. When I walk, the way I interact with people, uh, I always greet people. We always say hi. You know, we walk on the street. I, I, I get caught up in conversations that I wasn't intending to. Um, and and that, that practice, that liturgy of walking or riding my bike to work uh, helps me establish a sense of belonging. And it makes me available to my community in ways that driving just cannot replicate. Not only the people in my community, but the place as well. I notice you know, that the fall leaves are changing. I notice a chill in the air. You notice where you are differently when you can uh, engage in that liturgy of walking. And so anyway, that's, that's one of them. But just, tr- just trying to think through how do we do our daily life in such a way that will connect us to one another and connect us to the places that we live. Um, if we kind of develop that framework, I think regardless of where we happen to live or how far it is from our work and all those kinds of things, we can start to think of some liturgies, uh, different from the liturgies of checking my social media feed. I guess that would be another kind of anti, you know, yeah. you know how do I just tune that down and tune into uh, the place that I live? Yeah, that's good. And 
This has been a fascinating discussion. I could keep going on this. I would love to keep going on this, but our time is at an end. Our, our guest has been Eric Jacobson, Dr. Eric Jacobson, pastor of First Presbyterian Church in Tacoma, uh, Washington. And his book is, is really fascinating. Three pieces of glass, while we feel lonely, in a world mediated by, by screens. Um, Eric, thanks for writing this. Thanks for the, the work that you undertook to, to delve into this. This is a pressing issue for us, and it has to do with the church. It has to do with our Christian discipleship and, uh, and our evangelism as well, uh, our life among um, unbelievers. And so uh, thank you for, for the work that went into this, and thank you for being with us today here on Mortification of Spin. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. I loved it. Mm-hmm. And if you are one of our listeners, you can go to our website, mortificationofspin.org, and you can register to win a copy of this excellent book, Three Pieces of Glass by Eric Jacobson. Um, You'll just click on a link there and you can um, uh, enter to win a copy. And while you're there, if you'd like to make a a donation to the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, uh, we would certainly be uh, glad for you to do that as well. Well, we're so glad you joined us today. We look forward to being with you next time. Thanks for listening to Mortification of Spin, a podcast of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. For more on topics like this, visit mortificationofspin.org, where you can find other articles by Carl and Todd, browse the archive of past episodes, and make a donation. We'll talk to you next time on Mortification of Spin. Police, so lonely. Okay. The police were my band of choice as an utterly self-absorbed, existentially despairing teenager. They just captured <laughs> what it was like to be a teenager in the mid-80s. Well, I mean, you and I are the same age. And, I mean, in that 82 through 84, 85 period, I mean, they were the top band in the world. Yeah, I mean, they were they fantastic. And I still think Stuart Copeland is one of the greatest drummers. Eccentric, you know, he, he doesn't fit with the normal drumming pattern, but he is. But his dad was one of the founders of the CIA, you know. What? Come on. He lived in Britain in the latter part mm-hmm. of his life. He was always on the BBC because he was, his name was Miles Copeland, and he was one of the early operatives in the CIA. I think he'd been a Middle East specialist. Wow. So his dad was very high up in the American intelligence community. So, yeah, it was kind of fun that you'd got this drummer whose dad was a spy. So. <laughs> The NASB Journal The Word Reference Bible allows you to record your thoughts next to treasured verses as you cross-reference other scriptures. This single-column red-letter Bible features extra-wide margins, giving you plenty of space to reflect on God's Word and enhance your study. Recognized as the gold standard among word-for-word translations, the beloved New American Standard Bible 1995 edition is now easier to read with Zondervan's exclusive comfort print typeface. Excellent to give as a gift or for personal use. This Bible with your personal writings inside can also become a cherished heirloom to pass on to future generations. Available in black hardcover or brown leather soft, this beautiful Bible lays flat in your hand or on a tabletop. Let Scripture explain Scripture and reflect on what you learn. The NASB Journal the Word Reference Bible from Zondervan.
See it now at zondervan.com slash Bibles. Thank you.